Petri Dish is a product of Petri Dish Media, all rights reserved. All characters during the show, such as Donatella Iglesias, Jimmy Coconuts, and Tyler Jerry are copywritten and are satirical. Any similarity to any persons living or dead is completely coincidental. Petri Dish is a science comedy podcast and should not be used as medical advice. Do not get medical advice from a podcast. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Science! Science! Yes. Science! I know the human being and science! 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 peaceful. This was our finest. Hello everyone, this is Petri Dish. My name is Andre, and I have officially taken over the pod. <laughs> and my name is Andre's glass of wine. No! No! Put, put me down! <laughs> We're just going stupid like right away on this, huh? Alright, I'm Sean. I'm Nathan. And Andre is our guest here on part two of our little podcast series on dogs. We're going to talk about a lot of behavioral science about dogs. Dogs are easier to study than cats. So <laughs> yes, there's are. more science on it. Yeah, big time. So last time we talked about the domestication of dogs, and we talked about some of the different dog breeds. And this time around, like Nathan said, we're going to be talking about the behavior of dogs, do dogs love you, different dog jobs and stuff like that. So it should be a pretty fun and pretty wide-ranging episode. So let's talk dogs. So I think the question that, um, it's funny because it doesn't bother dog people. It always bothers cat people. But I think the question that matters here, does your dog even love you? Andre, you're the only one here with a dog. Does Judas love you? I think he definitely loves me. Then he's going to get you killed. Uh (laughs) (laughs) The Romans are going to knock on your door. But besides whether or not he loves me, I mean, there's a very noticeable difference in how he treats people he's familiar with versus just any random person. That's right. That, um. he, he tries to fuck me. <laughs> but with Stacy, he takes her out first. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just a sex object in Judas. <laughs> and, and whose fault is that, Nathan? <laughs> That's yeah. true. I give it up too easy. Well, you're I also... see one dog, Red Rocket, I just like go wild. You're always trouncing about. <laughs> That's true. I'm always wearing my skirts. I like where this Whoa. went. Whoa! <laughs> my short skirts. I was just going to talk about your boxers. Anyway, look. There are some people... Who bring up the idea, like, maybe dogs just like people that feed them or something, right? That, like, the whole relationship is predicated on the idea that, like, we take care of dogs but and they like That's that. not true. In, in my experience, there's, there's more to it than that. Right. And so I think that the science agrees with you in that dogs uh, experience an oxytocin increase when they have a human. Yeah, but the scientists who do this, they're probably dog people, right? Because no normal scientist would do this weird stuff. Dog people probably do this science. <laughs> It's like bias. I, I think a lot of people are dog people, so you'd actually have a kind of hard time to find like. I want to see the. I want to see the Chinese science on this. What are you saying? There's just a lot. <laughs> there's a lot less dog people in China than in America, because hey, in China, if you are what you eat, a lot of Chinese people are dog people. Holy shit! <laughs> Someone else finally did it. Oh, Someone okay. else is fucked up. Well, there we go. All right. Increased oxytocin level. Decreased cortisol levels. So these are like specific hormone readouts that seem to suggest. That dogs like just like being around people. We have taken MRI studies of dogs, and isn't it like torture 
to like cut open a dog's head like that. Holy shit. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so MRI does not require cutting open anybody's head. It can't fool me. I saw that's, a house. That's kind of the whole point of the MRI. Really? Is that, is that you can do the imaging without having to do anything invasive. That's cool. Yes. And so, you know, when they do these studies on dogs and they give the dogs different smells, the reward part of their brain lit up kind of the most when they are presented with a familiar human smell. Okay. So, like, you have two people and one of them is you and one of them is me. Uh-huh. Dogs like you naturally. They yeah. don't like me naturally. Yes. So you walk up <laughs> and you go up like, hey, Billy Bob dog. Yep. Like, here's a treat. And the dog is like, woof, woof. But then I walk up and I'm like, you little fuck, eat the shit. And even though the dog likes the treat, it's the same treat. They just don't like me. Yeah, so that's not at all what the study was, but I agree with you. (laughs) That was like fucking not the point of this at all. Oh, my bad. What I will say on I genuinely misunderstood. uh, (laughs) So so if you present a dog with the smell of a person they know, a person they don't know, a dog they are friends with, or a stranger dog... The only one of those that lights up the reward center of their brain is the human they know. Interesting. So even a friendly dog does not do the same thing to your dog's brain as a human that they like. That makes total sense to me. My girlfriend and I, we pretty much only go out to places that we can bring our dog to. Uh So like we'll be out at a brewery and we'll have our dog Judas with us on a leash just chilling. And tons of people will walk by. He will pay them no mind. Even if they try to interact with him, he'll be friendly enough, but it's just like, you know, he's like, oh, I'm on the lookout. Like, I'm looking for other dogs and people I know. And then when another dog shows up or when a person he's already super familiar with shows up, then all of a sudden he gets all excited and happy and, like, joyful. Yeah. And there's a total, like, it's very clear that he differentiates between people. Yeah, yeah, well, certainly, and I think a lot of that does end up coming down to smell. Dogs' sense of smell is so good, right, that they have these really big conceptual scent libraries, right, where they have sort of stored the memory of so many different scents. That sounds like a Rick and Morty parody of that Doctor Who episode. What Doctor Who episode? (laughs) Well, when they're in the libraries. I don't think you've watched enough Doctor (laughs) Who. (laughs) I'm familiar with the Doctor Who episode, but which... Yeah, you know, Rick David... Rick and Morty episode are you talking about? No, 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 no. no. It's a hypothetical Rick and Morty episode oh. to the David Tennant episode. <laughs> and Andre, you should be ashamed that you know what David, what David Tennant Doctor Who episode I'm talking about. <laughs> you are a shameful person. <laughs> you, you both are bad. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. That's the thing. Is like, he's brought to my level now. Yep, that's true. So I will say that dogs exhibit a behavioral attachment to humans that's kind of reminiscent of the relationship between human babies and their caregivers. In that there's lots of different forms of this relationship, but if they feel secure with their caregiver, then they'll explore spaces when their caregiver is around. When their caregiver suddenly goes missing, they'll kind of get freaked out and search for their caregiver. And then when the caregiver comes back, they will kind of glomp onto them and stick by their side for a little while to kind of like watch to make sure they don't go anywhere. Part of the reason we take our dog everywhere is because he gets very clearly upset. When we don't. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. How do dogs conceptualize, like, how's the object permanence for a dog? Dogs have object permanence. So right. they are aware that, like, you or other things continue existing when you're not in their sight. But they can also feel a lot of anxiety about yeah. that, right? So there's this thing called the Ainsworth Strange Situation Experiment. 
And this is actually, it's normal. It's so funny. This is such a terrible movie. (laughs) (laughs) Like like with 1960s hippie font? The Ainsworth Strange Situation Experiment. It sounds like one of those bands. (laughs) Yeah, like a Frank Zappa (laughs) album with the Mothers of Invention. Exactly. And so the thing is that this this was normally, or this was originally formulated for infants to look at the different ways that infants were attached to their caregivers. Is this one of the ones where there'll be like a, a plate of glass over like a hole? And then, like, the mother's on the other side calling to the baby, like, come, come to me. And then, like, depending on the baby's <laughs> stage of development, it'll either trust the mother implicitly and crawl across the glass or be afraid of falling. Right. So it's in the same neighborhood of those kinds That's of experiments. That's such a fucked up experiment for the mom. <laughs> That's a real experiment. But, That's fucked. But this particular Stacey experiment. Stacy and I did that experiment once. I was like, Stacy, <laughs> Stacy, come here. Stacy was like, just turned around and went to the lava mall. <laughs> so, so this experiment... The way that it works is you have the caregiver and the baby and you go into a room and there's some toys in the middle of the room and the caregiver sets the baby down. The baby goes over. You check to see, does the baby go straight to the toys? Is is the baby hesitant? Stuff like that, right? So there's that behavioral part. And then at a certain point, the caregiver leaves the room fairly suddenly. And the baby, a normal response is they'll start looking around and searching for the caregiver you know, a little anxious about it because they've just been suddenly separated. And then when the caregiver comes back, the baby is obviously very glad to see the caregiver, kind of goes straight towards them, wants to get picked up, and then they'll hang out with the caregiver and not really want to leave right away. I didn't do any of that shit. (laughs) I just smoked a cigarette and started watching porn, dude. (laughs) So, so, like, fuck caregivers. Oh, when did you quit smoking? (laughs) I mean, at at five. (laughs) I spent four years as a smoker. So, um, that would mean that you weren't a quote-unquote secure baby because the... I was very fucking secure. (laughs) What I just described is the secure behavior, okay? And then there are a bunch of other behaviors like insecure avoidant or insecure ambivalent. You are maybe insecure ambivalent, which means that they sort of feign being disinterested in their caregiver disappearing. Sean, this sounds like dipshit psychology stuff. I thought you hated this sort of study. So the thing about this is, is that babies are dumb enough that the psychology <laughs> works out. <enough. laughs> They're not really complicated enough. So this actually, this works pretty well to understand the nature and extent of bonding between the caregiver and the child. If babies are not complex, but we're complex, yeah, then like, there must be something metaphysical going on, right? Because Why? what? Well, <laughs> well, well, because all the biological stuff is basically the same between a baby brain and a Absolutely human brain. Absolutely right? not. Well, of course, like God changes a few things. As oh you get older, man, you, have you com- are as, as you have commun every time you have communion and drink the blood of Christ. <laughs> I hate so much about the things you choose to be. No, but like. <laughs> Stop talking about Scientology that way. (laughs) All right. So look, uh, it's important to mention really briefly here that dogs are obviously not human babies. (laughs) They're not the same. But when you put dogs into this experiment, there are a lot of parallels, okay? In that there are some dogs that are secure. In that they'll have the same sort of behavior where they don't like it when the human's gone, but they'll react a moderate amount, okay? They're clearly anxious, but they won't bark a lot. They won't run around and tear shit up, right? Right. Those kinds of behaviors are more associated with the insecure avoidant or insecure ambivalent dogs. Okay. And so that kind of plays into this idea that there is this kind of inner psychology going on inside of dogs. And that, yeah. Is there a difference between breeds? Like are Shiba Inus just like, they just sit there and like, don't give a fuck. 
And then, like, terriers are like, ah, there's the little, little fuckers, <laughs> like they are. <laughs> yes, a little bit. Interesting. A little bit. Who's but... the most fuck-ass dog? There's like a yappy little motherfucker. <laughs> they haven't done it with enough kinds of dogs uh, okay. to, to crown a winner fuck-ass. Um, <laughs> I'm the winner fuck-ass. What I will say is that in this particular kind of experiment, there's much more variability based off of the relationship between the dog and the human oh. than there is from the breed. Okay? okay, so this is a good example of like, there are breed behaviors, but all dogs can be trained, right? And all dogs can be brought up in a way to sort of make some of these other behaviors like flipping the shit out. Boy. These things can be trained away. Except Jindo, am I right? You can try. You can train a Jindo for 10 years, and that Jindo will still end up going out, smoking a cigarette, drinking some soju, and playing pool down in Gardena. You just can't stop a Jindo from doing it. Yeah, you that was take... the kind of dog you had growing up, right, guys? Yeah. 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 Did not like Sam. Did he, he regressed to wolf dog. Like, really hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Korean dogs don't like gay people. <laughs> I, I said it quieter because even I know. It's a sad truth. <laughs> That's fucked up. Uh, anyway, so so I, I thought this behavioral study was really interesting. And it was a really recent study. And how the dumb human years. babies are. <laughs> they get smarter. <laughs> but so, Like, rarely. No. <laughs> they grow up. You, you're smarter than a baby. <laughs> I'm like so much dumber <laughs> but the main thing I want to say is that I do think that this sort of behavioral study as it becomes more common and as we look at more variables might help us figure out kind of more rational ways to be able to raise dogs that are more secure yeah wait wait, wait though are dogs chiller or less chill when the person is a caregiver that they recognize or not I actually missed that part well, I think dogs always recognize their caregivers. No, no, no. But like, so the person in the room is their caregiver. Yeah. And then they leave. Yeah. Does the dog freak out more or freak out less? Less when they're secure. Oh, interesting. Okay. They still okay. freak out though. But less and usually with less like barking or behaviors like that's tearing super up interesting. Shit. And so, yeah. So that's the idea. So then if there's a rando in the room and the rando leaves, the dog actually freaks out more. What? Why? No, I don't know. I thought that's what you just said. I think what Nathan's trying to say is, like, let's say there's, like, the caregiver and a random researcher in the room. And then the caregiver leaves, but the but the random person, like, the researcher's still there. Oh, uh, yeah. And so the dog's like, well, this is kind of weird, but at least someone's watching me. No, the dog does not. That doesn't help at all. No. Yeah, the stranger does not help the dog be more chill. <laughs> Dogs don't like strangers. They recognize enough, or they have a meaningful enough with their human that another human is not just like a replacement, right? So they recognize enough individuals that humans are not interchangeable with. That's each other. like how those Shibas were like some Japanese guy will die in World War II and they'll like go to their fucking gravesite for like yeah. 20 years or dogs don't live that long. They're like a while. There's that dog statue in Shibuya in Tokyo. Yeah. That famous Shiba dog. Is that what? Hachi? Hachi. Yeah, Hachi. Like was all sad and shit when the owner died. Man. World War II really did a number on those guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> those guys memorialized the stupidest shit. <laughs> well, I mean, what a country. You nuke a country and you get Akira. Okay, so I don't right, know. Right. <laughs> Can we talk about what the nukes did to Japanese neurotoxins? <laughs> An upcoming episode. Um, okay. Neurotransmitters, excuse so, me. So let's take a break here and then we can start getting into some of these like fun, interesting dog facts that are out there in the world. Okay? Woo. The following is an actual advertisement. Snark Tank is a roundtable discussion about weird and wonderful inventions throughout history. They're functional, 
they're practical, they're durable, they're breathable, but like you could survive the winter in a pair of jorts if you had to. But sometimes it's not. But I, I hope you I hope you are aware that I do have a second mic plugged in and I am foleying my farts. Oh good. Good, good, good. During every episode of True Blood, my couch cushions were probably as wet as the Louisiana Bayou. <laughs> <laughs> what what an attractive way to describe that. I'm Drew. And I'm Britt. Join us every other Wednesday for new episodes. Snark Tank is now available on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Okay, guys, welcome back to Petri Dish. We're going to talk about all sorts of really wild dog facts that have been studied in science. The first one is dog feces. Apparently, (laughs) dogs change their expressions based on if people pay attention to their feces or not. What does that mean, Sean? I don't know what that means. Yeah, dog faces. Exactly. What? (laughs) I always thought my dog was giving me a weird look when I would like pick up its poop after it was done on a walk. It is kind of a funny inversion of power relationships. Do you think dogs think about that at all? About how you pick up their shit? Because that's what comedians always say. One thing that I heard about the whole dog pooping situation was sometimes you'll see dogs look up at people while they're pooping. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. so weird. I heard that. I look at Stacey when I poop. I heard I'm that, just like, that they're checking to see if we're keeping lookout for them because they're in a vulnerable oh. position. Oh, that makes sense. Now, instead of looking back at my dog, I'll right. be like, don't worry, yeah. man. Keep, I'm keeping keep, my keep an eye out. out. Make cool. sure that nobody sneaks Pull out up my gun. <laughs> Yo, don't you worry, Judas. Yeah, whip out that katana. You're a man of the sword. Yeah. Uh, very beautiful. Anyway, dog faces. <laughs> so dogs change their expressions based on whether people are paying attention or not. And that might not seem like a big deal, but actually a lot of animals do not really give a shit about what expression they have. That's right? true. We have a leopard gecko. Yep. It does not. No. It does not care. It doesn't. I mean, often a lot of animals don't do any kind of facial expression, but when a lot of animals do, it's just based off of some kind of physical thing that they're doing, right? It's not a way of communicating their inner emotions, but dogs definitely do. And you can tell because dogs might be thinking about something when you're not looking at them, but once you look at them, they'll actually start expressing it on their faces because they know that we're paying attention. Do you think the dog is thinking like, oh man, I really liked Louis C.K. in The First Secret Life of Pets. (laughs) (laughs) At least one dog had to be thinking that. That's true. (laughs) He's not a dog, he's just a horny guy. (laughs) One thing that seems pretty clear to me, though, is that at least with my dog, like the facial expressions he saves for the people, you know, but the the tail is more like how dogs communicate with one another, like in lieu of facial expressions. Right. I, huh. I, and I think That's tail movement is definitely linked to emotion. And it might be some question as to whether it is voluntary or not. I mean, might... tail movement is one of the main ways I communicate with Stacy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, your vestigial tail nubbing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <kinda> <laughs> well, <laughs> for humans, I mean, I would say facial expression is only partially voluntary, right? Like right. we can choose to smile, but... Sometimes, like, if something makes us smile, like, we just smile. That's true. And right. in Brazil, 50% communication is just nipple tassel. And that has nothing to do with the face. <laughs> oh, that is the most, the most non-non-sequitur so far. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, dogs have actually kind of evolved over time to be more expressive. 
Okay, so this is one of the ways that biologically there is a big difference between dogs and wolves is actually the facial structure and muscle structure in dogs. For example, their eyebrows. They can kind of pull their eyebrows up hmm. more than wolves can. And so dogs have more expressive eyeballs and they can do that kind of puppy dog eyes situation, right? And that is definitely a biological change from wolves. Wolves cannot do that. I used to not be able to do much of my eyebrows, but Stacey finds eyebrows attractive. Since then, I've become like a wizard with eyebrows. Oh, yeah, you've been doing a lot of... Yeah. Like, like, I'm doing the, sound the rock, effects. Dwayne Johnson-style eyebrow yeah. situation. Me moving my eyebrows does not work in an audio format, so I'm making noise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's me moving my eyebrows. It's very sexy. Ah, Stacy likes it. <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing I will say is that some elements of involuntary actions or facial expression things, which I didn't put in the notes because science is split on them, is things like yawn contagion. Science is split. Sounds like Schrodinger just like fucking somebody. <laughs> God damn it. Um, okay. But, but yawn contagion. You know what that is, right? So I've noticed my dog does yawn, but I have not noticed that my dog yawns like relative to my own yawn. Right. So that's the thing is that some science and some people will say, oh, dogs definitely catch human yawns like humans can spread yawns with each other right like if if i yawn then you become more likely to yawn and Caesar and, milan is like no you must be the alpha you must not yawn in front of your dog <laughs> right but then some other science is like no it fucking doesn't just not really and I, I don't know how they could both do good science and disagree but like somehow they can't agree i'm on gonna this. i'm gonna experiment with my dog i'll get back to you guys next time i guest star gonna, yeah. judas is gonna be so confused <laughs> yeah, i'll like, just sit in front of him <laughs> <laughs> why, why, why is your mouth open all the time <laughs> yes so not a clean segue next topic dog anxiety i mean dogs are here for our emotional support dogs don't need emotional support right so what I will say is dogs experience a lot of anxiety, and some dogs more than others. Interesting. This is uh, actually a little bit related to what we were talking about with the Ainsworth strange situation experiment, right? Where you had insecure and secure dogs. And insecure dogs definitely experience anxiety. It can come out in a lot of different ways. Aggression or phobia are the two main categories. So they'll either become unreasonably frightened by things or unreasonably aggressive against things. Right. And so that can be like dogs barking way too much or flipping out at any kind of small sound or anything like right. that. Right. Like cucumbers. No, that's cats. Bye yeah. Bye. Yeah. But snakes, right? Like yeah. snakes freak out basically anything. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But also, you know, I mean, <laughs> mailmen or something like that, right? Like it's, right. There's a lot of situations. The classic tropes. But there's this kind of weird study on the gut microbiome of different dogs. That found that aggressive, anxious dogs had very different gut microbiomes compared That's to other so dogs. so weird, man. Yeah. That whole gut microbiome where it can affect things more than just, like, digestion. Yeah. Totally freaky. Yeah, so I think at some point in the future, we're going to be doing a gut microbiome redux episode. I've noticed we... I like Korean film more after I started eating kimchi more. That's gotta be... Related. The gut microbiome. <laughs> That's just science. Nothing else to it. I had but, this all just in my fucking stomach. Yeah, all old Korean men just sitting around in my sauna stomach. Yeah, drinking soju. So, hypothetically, the way that the gut microbiome would be related to any of that kind of shit would be that the different kinds of gut microbes would be pooping out different substances. And some of those substances might be related to things that can affect your mood. Now, the how is a little complicated. There's, there's a series of sort of 
maybe semi-related facts, like your small intestine and large intestine are the places where the most serotonin in your body is produced. What? Yep. That was my dick. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why do you think? Oh, <laughs> semen. <laughs> oh my god. How do you get those two things confused? All right. <laughs> oh, right. That's enough out of you. Okay, anyway. wait. I'm hearing this because I know I lick Stacy when I'm very anxious and I'm worried Stacy's going to leave me. Apparently, dogs are similar. Dogs lick people when they're very anxious. Yeah, so anxious dogs uh, have a tendency to lick excessively. Yeah. Um, and Nathan has a tendency to lick excessively. <laughs> yeah. And it might also be a manifestation of obsessive compulsive disorder. Do you remember when you went to college at Berkeley? I was just licking your face for two days before. I, was like, <laughs> I remember it as toes a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I was just sucking your little toe. Be like, corn niblets, little corn niblets. Uh, but yes, yes. Excessive licking out of dogs okay. because of anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder. And licking in the dog brain is an activity that can help release endorphins. So it can actually like literally make them feel better. Oh, well, that's, hey, that's interesting. Okay, because Andre's dog, Judas, licks a lot. But Judas actually licks a little bit. Yeah, he doesn't lick that right. much relative Whereas to some Whereas a different friend's little dog licks like a motherfucker. Like that dog licks me for like two hours straight. And I like to gross out. The friends who are around, but I just sure. like let him like lick my toes. Yeah. Okay, it's not a sex thing. <laughs> it's just for laughs. Okay, it's for the goffs. Yeah. But I'm more weirded out that you would even bring up it as a sex thing. <laughs> okay. Wow, Andre, bad friend. Who, who made it a sex thing, maybe? No, no one did. No one did. Just somebody might. Wow. The point is, this dog keeps licking me, and the dog I think does have a more anxious lifestyle. It's like yeah. alone more frequently. Yeah. It's a little punk bitch. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And in some dogs where the excessive licking is actually legitimately some kind of problem, they have done things where they've treated those dogs with drugs that are used in humans for obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm, lithium. Uh, no, they don't usually use lithium, but I forgot the name of the drug that ah, they do. Elliot Smith albums. <laughs> One thing I will say is that aside from dosing your dogs with uh, drugs for obsessive compulsive disorder, yeah, goop. There's this other thing that I've read a few papers about called dog appeasing pheromone. And, I don't like the sound of that at all. DAP. That's just peanut butter, isn't it? No. <laughs> dog appeasing pheromone is this pheromone that's released out of female dogs after they give birth. Gross. Um, from from their nipple type area, <laughs> dude. You saying nipple type area is the least sexy thing that's ever been done. Newt Gingrich could say labia; it'd still be sexier than you saying nipple type area. I've been trying to make it not sexy. I don't want you to get turned on while I'm talking about dog nipples. You fuck dogs, not anymore, Nathan. <laughs> College is over. <laughs> <laughs> so dap or dog appeasing pheromone calms dogs down it makes them chill out the big thing in science right now is whether or not it works well enough and consistently enough to be actually a treatment for anxiety or if it just has a tendency to make dogs feel better but there's a synthetic version of it that some company in france makes hmm. and some people say that it really calms their dogs down and the way that it works is it kind of goes into the dog's snout and hits that vomeronasal receptor area where pheromones are normally activated, and it just goes straight into their brain, you know, and it seems to really actually change the activity there. It's like catnip. 
Catnip works on this whack ass level. Makes right. the cat all fucked up. This is the opposite. Is it works on some whack ass level to make a dog relax? Right. Yes. Cool. Yes. The same whack ass system that pheromones seem to work on in general. Pheromones. We should do an episode on pheromones, man. What's going on, with pheromones? Yeah, I think. Does we a pheromone work on you? Because I've noticed that this is pheromone called curry. <laughs> just, like, just like fucks me well, up. What, is, what does it do to you? <laughs> I, I, I just start. Stacey's like apologizing to the Indian restaurant. <laughs> like I'm sorry. It's really good butter chicken. <laughs> he can't help himself. Holy shit. <laughs> okay, guys. Really quick before we leave the subject of dog anxiety. Yeah, I've noticed uh, there's a bunch of companies out there selling. Um, CBD laced dog treats. That sounds naughty. (laughs) I mean, I tend to not like getting ripped off, so my bullshit detectors like prevent me from buying that for my dog. Yeah, good detector. But uh, I don't know. Do you know anything about that? Well, I've seen videos of deer getting high. Well, CBD. (laughs) So they're not getting high, but potentially helping with anxiety. Who knows? I yeah, that's a good question. I'm willing to bet that given the paucity of studies. With people in CBD, (laughs) (laughs) dogs in CBD are probably a lower rung that hasn't really quite hit the science rack. How about mice, though? How's the mice CBD studies going? Mice and CBD? That's a good question. I think CBD in mice does have a tendency to produce something similar to kind of an anti-anxiety kind of effect. They, like, just walk past the cheese and go to White Castle or something? (laughs) It's not not THC! (laughs) (laughs) It's not the same! I don't know about your letters, you liberal cuck! (laughs) Anyway, okay, guys, so, and our our last category of weirdo dog shit is something that I've never heard of, because I remember my dog, when I had a dog back in middle school, Yep. uh, Jack, Jack's feet used to smell like just straight talcum powder. What? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. (laughs) I just, I couldn't think of something weird enough in time. That's fair enough. Point is, apparently some dogs smell like Fritos? Yes. This is definitely something I've observed. It's been a while since I've smelled my dog's feet. It's something <laughs> It's something I associate more with puppyhood I've been than busy. adulthood. Yeah, so some people feel like their dog's feet at whatever particular age smell like corn nuts or Fritos or something like that. And they are not alone. This is a relatively common phenomenon and is a legit phenomenon. And what that is is bacteria. We all have bacteria all over our skin, right? Is dogs bacteria what makes tortilla chips smell like tortilla chips? No, no. So there are particular chemicals that are probably involved in that, like 2-acetylpyridine. Okay. Um, and there's probably a range, actually, of molecules that make that kind of corny sort of smell. But the bacteria are producing a similar kind of compound, which our nose is just sort of mixing up with that smell. And there's, you know, a couple different times, maybe Proteus or Pseudomonas would be like the groups that these bacteria species are in. And they just exist there naturally. So, you know, just a little bit of that Fritos funk is not an indication that the dog is sick or like that it's bad or anything. Uh, If dogs get really stinky, you should wash them (laughs) because that's totally fine. But of course, they are going to have bacteria and stuff like that. They're going to have their microbiome living on them just like we do, right? So that's where that Fritos smell comes from, is little bacterias on their feet. All right, cool. So don't worry about Fritos, guys. Great dipping. Take, a, take a big whiff. Fritos good. Now let's take a break, because after the break, we're going to talk about dog chips. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know what that means, actually. Dog, dog, dog jobs. I think it's supposed yeah. to be jobs, but like He's... the South Park episode. Oh, they took our chip. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, guys, let's take a break, and then we're going to talk about dog jobs. <laughs> My name is Jimmy Coconuts, and I'm here to talk to you about the future. 
we all want to know the future. When will coronavirus end? When will my wife finally leave me? Who will win the presidential election? We all have these questions, and now we can finally answer them with Coco Divination. It's the ancient Polynesian art that harnesses the mystic power of coconuts, as seen in Moana's deleted scenes. For $10, there's Coco Tea Leaves. For $20, you can have a Coco Tarot card reading. And at $50, we'll feed a toucan some coconuts, slaughter it, and divine from its spilt Coco entrails. I'm telling you people, Coco Divination works. Just last week, I cut open my parrot, all the coconut milk and guts formed into Joe Biden's face, and boom! Joe Biden won Super Tuesday! It was in the coconuts all along. So don't wait. Come on down to Jimmy Coconut's Orange County Coconut Emporium and peer into the future with Coco Divination. Okay, guys, we're back with Petri Dish. We're going to go through some of the things that dogs do. I don't know how it's science exactly, but it's about dog jobs. Yeah, a lot of it's not science. It's just fun to talk about. I just <laughs> want to say, like, the, it's because I asked some people out there, like, what do you want to know scientifically about dogs? And they're like, dog jobs. And I was like, all right. <laughs> um, all right. So, <laughs> Speaking of dog jobs, Nathan and I, we both work in the airport. Yeah. And every once in a while, there's like these little old ladies that come through with a handful of very well-behaved dogs that are like trained therapy animals and their entire job, their whole thing is to just go through wearing like funny clothes and just soothe the anxiety of like nervous oh, the like, travelers. Dog. Sure, yeah. 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 And I just think that's great and I love seeing them every time they show up. Uh, I remember once I was like, how can I get that job? Referring to the ladies that bring the dogs around. <laughs> and apparently they're volunteers, so that just like shattered my dreams. I thought the joke was gonna be paid like to bring dogs to the I thought airport. the joke would be like, Well, why don't you just sit right over here and I'll put a leash on you? Yeah. I thought that was the joke. <laughs> I also. thought that's what I was like, <laughs> A lot of listeners don't know that Andre looks like a really fuzzy and cute dog, so like yeah, that's part of the issue here. It, I mean the funny thing about that is Andre and I again work in the same bar, and when those dogs come by, I'm like, God, fucking dogs, like Jesus. <laughs> just like customers crowding the space. <laughs> Like, I'm all jaded because I used to work at a pasta place uh, that, that had a lot of business. And, like, hipsters would come with, like, the tiniest little fuck dogs that are clearly more anxious than they are. Mm-hmm. Like, this is my emotional support animal. Are you gluten-free? And they'd be like, <laughs> they'd be like you're everything I hate! <laughs> you know, Andre is a dog owner of a very lovely dog. And thus, Andre has a more healthy relationship with dog chirps than I do. Whereas, like, to me, a lot of dog jobs are, like, total bullshit for people to just get to keep their pets in more situations. Okay, so we'll get to that particular hang-up kind of neurosis that you have. But first, it's not a neurosis. (laughs) Look, that literally Trump's America has rolled back uh, regulations so that airlines are allowed to classify less animals as emotional support animals. Because there were so many complaints coming in about like people bringing peacocks and squirrels and asshole dogs onto planes. Yeah, sure. That now airlines are allowed to deregulate and be like, no, that that animal does not count. Sure. Sometimes people go too far. But so... Dogs obviously have had jobs. Yeah, like jobs. the quote-unquote blind. People can see. Dogs have Just had kidding. jobs for a very long time, okay. right? Dogs had a functional purpose. In theory, the origin of dogs in our relationship is right. functional. Exactly, right? So, and a lot of times dogs still do things that they were bred for from a long time back, right? Like there are still hunting dogs and dogs used for game retrieval. Our dog would get opossums. All right, well, he'd yell at them anyway. He killed one, right? Didn't he kill baby opossum? Yes. And then he got into kind of a 
a standoff with the... A kerfuffle with mama. Yeah. So... Dogs are still used for, like, herding and pulling sleds and shit, you Ooh, know? Like so. Kaibos. What's Kaibos? No, shit. What's the name of the dog that brought the meds to the kids in Balto. Balt. Isn't there a K-1 too, though? Stacey, what was it with, like, Kaito? Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The, the one I know of is the one Sean just said. What'd you say? Balto. 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 Right? Stacey, what is it? Togo. Togo? Togo. You're really looking for a K name, though. Yeah, I thought it was... Kaito is a Japanese guy. <laughs> Kinja. Kinja. <laughs> Simba. Okay, let's go back to comforting. Yeah, What so, else can dogs do besides, I don't know, hunt? Yeah, so dogs have been increasingly trained to comfort people. Dogs, because of the attention that they pay to human mood and emotional state, can help people who are suffering from things like PTSD and anxiety. Okay, and they can also help blind and disabled people. I do think dogs as an animal do have this sort of intrinsic ability that we've bred in over time. But at the same time, they need to be trained to do this like really effectively. Right. And so while I think that like, hey, you owning a dog might help reduce your level of anxiety at the end of the day or something. That's great. But they're not the same as like a trained and certified actual emotional support. How do you train a dog to be more emotionally supportive? Yeah, so there's supposed to be certain signs and behaviors in a person that will lead the dog to do specific kinds of actions to comfort them, like certain kinds of touch and things like that. So like, uh, I think one of the examples is the dog will respond to certain human behaviors with like laying their head in the human's lap or something like that, or like coming up and touching their head to the human's hand if they're standing or something. So there's certain ways of interacting and also linking those responses to certain human behaviors, right? And that's just for, like, emotional support. Dogs also obviously are trained to, like, help with the blind and disabled people. And outside of emotional support dogs, there are service dogs. Because emotional support animals and service animals are two entirely different things. Right, yeah. Outside of leading the blind, I mean, there's all kinds of other jobs that dogs are capable of. Right. Just to name at least one, like... I know that like people with epilepsy sometimes have service dogs where they will detect when the person's having a seizure and they'll specifically go to protect the person's head when they fall. Yeah. Like, that's so another legitimate support animal. That is a great segue into the next category. Dogs can basically use their sniffing ability. And so actually in the epilepsy example, dogs can be trained to detect epileptic fits before they start happening. What? Yes. So it is not clear Clairvoyant dogs. what they are seeing or smelling in that person that would indicate that they're going to have an epileptic fit. But dogs that are trained in this way can actually signal to their owners, hey, you're going to have an epileptic fit. Prepare yourself. How did we figure out that dogs knew that? And how can you train a dog if we don't know what they're reacting right. so to? So it began anecdotally in that there were more and more anecdotes from people who were suffering from epilepsy who have dogs when people are sick when their owners are sick dogs clearly worry about their owners and will respond to their owners being sick so what these people were noticing was that sometimes before having an epileptic fit their dog would come up to them and like maybe whine or push their head against them like some kind of attention-seeking behavior because they were concerned and then the person would go into an epileptic fit and they're like what the shit like it seemed like they knew ahead of time And statistically, they looked at enough of these cases and actually like kind of looked into it in dogs that already demonstrated this ability. And they found that these dogs that are sensing something are legitimately sensing it, like statistically. And so now dogs that have shown that they can have that ability 
they'll take those dogs. You can basically put that dog through a training program so they know what to do when they sense that. So if dogs can do that and cats can't, why do we still have cats? (laughs) (laughs) Some people just won't give up on them. God damn those people. (laughs) Some people, dogs are just too much work. And those are called cat people. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. That's true. But there are other situations where dogs can utilize their super sniffers, right? So the thing is, dogs have a really great sense of smell. Their noses are a little wet, so the smell molecules can stick a little bit better. Their mucous membrane has about 50 times the surface area. Fun fact about wet noses. If you just take water and, like, rub it around your nose holes, you can smell better temporarily. Yeah. So why don't we do that? What? Why don't we... (laughs) why, why Why don't we... Do that. Just lick your nose more often. No, but like, why evolutionary? Do we not like wet our noses? Because our eyes are really good. Oh, so we just don't need that nose shit. Dogs are shittier than us. So we've also, we have fewer olfactory receptors than dogs. Uh, We're just not geared to use our nose as our main sensory organ. Mm -hmm. Dogs are way more nose oriented. And in fact, there are really specific breeds of dog that are called sighting dogs. In that the way that they hunt or sense things is mostly eyesight related. But the rest of dogs, eyesight takes a really serious backseat to their nose. Yes. Right. It's like, like, a, how- like a good portion of our brains is dedicated to interpreting the signals from our eyes. Whereas dogs, the largest portion of their brain is for the signals from their nose. Right. So they can detect all kinds of stuff from like truffles to drugs to landmines to trapped people. So dogs get trained and used for all these different kinds of purposes. One caveat to this, I will say, is that dogs really love people. They really love them. And what that means is that their objectivity can be compromised. They get too close. Right. They get too close, man. They can, for example, during the training process, be trained wrong or incorrectly. They can misinterpret signals from their trainer that they're kind of hyper paying attention to and end up signaling things incorrectly. Or alternatively, their handler, when they're actually out in the field, they can pick up on whether their handler wants there to be drugs inside of that suitcase or something, right? And so you can actually see these situations where there can be this undue influence of the handlers on the dogs because the dogs care so much. Damn. That's why not all drug or bomb sniffing dogs graduate right and my understanding is you can actually adopt dogs that have been failed out of these programs that's cool and they're like pretty cool dogs yeah that you can own and have basically they're the nice ones (laughs) (laughs) the ones that don't want to send you to jail yeah um yeah so you know another thing that i would say just on the topic of smelling stuff is that there's this thing called the mirror test of self-awareness right like spiders there are jumping spiders they can look in the mirror and be like hey what's up me (laughs) but dogs are dumber than jumping spiders they look and they're like who's that guy dogs can totally recognize themselves in mirrors so here's the thing the way that the mirror test works is that you wait until the thing is asleep or something like that, and then you mark them some way. So, like, you know, you color their hair a little bit or something. And then you put them in front of a mirror, and then they look, and they see that what they're looking at has, like, some color in their hair or something. And then they pay attention to that, try to do something to that part of their body that they can't see normally, okay? Indicating that they're aware that that image is of them and of parts of their body that they don't normally see. Right. And the thing is, dogs do not perform well in the mirror test. Does it differ from dog to dog? Because, I don't know, maybe just poodles are super smart. (laughs) I know for a fact 
My dog can recognize himself in a mirror. Well, we'll put some pink on his hair. And we'll I'll see. try that. I have not yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, or like a post-it note, just like mm. on the top of the poof or something. But no, here, pink hair. <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing is that, uh, as we just mentioned, most dogs don't use sight as their primary means of perceiving oh, the world. So what I'm perceiving as my dog recognizing himself in the mirror is just the dog recognizing, hey, there's no smell coming from that mirror. There's no way that's another dog. Right. And so when they do a quote-unquote mirror test that doesn't use sight but uses smell, they'll take the dog's own scent and adulterate it slightly. The dog will actually spend longer smelling that scent trying to figure out, like, why is my smell fucked up? Hmm. Because they both recognize it as their own and recognize that it's altered. So if they take a different dog and alter that scent, or if they take a human or something, all of those other scents, they don't really spend as much time on. But they're able to recognize their own scent and whether it's changed or not. Okay, here's what's <laughs> important to our listeners, Sean. Yeah. Can dogs smell cancer? Yeah, hey, so listen, about at least once a year, a news article comes out saying, like, dogs can smell your lung cancer. So how or, could that ever be possible? Cancer, probably, induces changes in your body that involves one way or another some kind of small molecule changing how much is produced or something like that Wouldn't that depend so much on the cancer yes probably yeah. <laughs> i feel like it and, super would and probably on the person too right but the thing is that dogs are really good at discriminating smells even when one is overpowering actually damn the, dogs don't worry about cumin at all well the, so the thing is that there are drug sniffing dogs for example where like you can take the drugs you know double wrap them in condoms Smear the outside with like capsaicin and perfume, and they can still put it in smell. coffee, right? And they can still smell that that drug was there. That's pretty cool. Yes, but in any case, in some of these studies, dogs can be trained to be able to tell if a sample was from somebody with cancer or not. Okay, in that if you were like okay, and you take some urine or something like that from a person with cancer and a person without, and you're like. This is a cancer one, and like you get a treat, and like shake my hand afterwards, and then you. This is not one, like don't shake my hand. If you go back and forth, dogs will eventually be able to learn to recognize those samples. Okay, so they are smelling something that differentiates those samples. The thing is, in a really, really, really well controlled trial that was double blinded, so the people didn't know what was in the samples, the dogs didn't know what was in the samples, the dogs didn't perform any better than by chance. Okay, so this hmm. is bullshit. Well. That's one study that says that they can't. There's about a dozen studies that say that they can. But they're all bullshit studies. Well, all of these I studies... Mean, it makes sense to me, though, that a dog would be able to perceive that, like, maybe a really nervous person's bag is worth alerting on if they're, like, sniffing for drugs or bombs. Well, well that makes sense, but what about cancer, though? Well, so I think a bigger thing is dogs are much more likely to be able to detect cancer in a person that they know. Because there smells a little off from what it usually uh, right, is. Right. That makes sense. And so I think that there's a little bit of a confounding issue here in that dogs presented with like a kind of wholly new situation might have a harder time discriminating. Another issue with a lot of these studies is even though there ends up being a news article written about them, these studies are of like two dogs or three dogs mm -hmm. or something. Their sample size is tiny as shit, partially because of how hard it is to train these dogs. So I would say overall... Inconclusive. I wouldn't expect to see dogs in every hospital 
real soon that like are supposed to sniff out whether you have cancer or not. Sure. An MRI is probably better at detecting cancer <laughs> than a dog. Uh, for now, no. anyway. No, I mean, I think... that's a lie. <laughs> well, the advocates for this idea, even among scientists, advocates for this idea suggest that like it could be a lot faster and cheaper if this is at least one step early on in the screening process. Right. Uh, that like even if they you know have like an 80% success rate or something like that, the number of false positives wouldn't be so bad. You can go on to further screening. 20% is still a pretty rough percent for false positives, right? I, I think so. Anyway, the point is... Dog people who are bad scientists <laughs> no. want to find any way to <laughs> no, use dogs. No, don't be so mean to them. <laughs> Whereas you could just I, use the screening that we have. <laughs> I think further research can uh, totally change the meaning of PET scans. PET. <laughs> Pet. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but look, hey, man, some of the screening options that we have right now, like for prostate cancer, <laughs> is pretty shitty. I was about to say, it feels good. <laughs> no, it, uh, like the prostate... Digital, digital rectal exam oh no <laughs> no it, it's like there are urine tests but they are not that accurate either okay right. so like so there are some issues on if all sides if a dog could just smell your cock and then be like 80 percent chance you have cancer that's still better yep. or as good as some other tests yeah so we'll see we'll okay, see in guys, the future let's take a little micro music break and after the boop, 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 little micro break we're gonna talk about dogs brains Dog sexual preferences, I don't know what that means. And then maybe the oldest cancer in the world comes from dogs. Yeah. What? Yeah, we'll get into it. And we're back, and we're going to start out talking about dog brains, okay? So in animals, differences in brain size can mean differences in behavior, but not necessarily differences in intelligence. Right, like octopi are really smart, but like barely even have a normalized brain, whereas whales are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> who can't even open up jars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How smart can you be? <laughs> you fucking idiot whale. <laughs> they can't open like the pill tops. You yeah, know, yeah, like we're the... an octopus, dude. <laughs> you give an octopus like a little bit of lithium and just pop, yeah. pops it right open. Right away. So in dogs, breeds with bigger brains appear to have better short-term memory and self-control than dogs with smaller brains. Well, that sounds right. But there is not a huge difference in other tests of intelligence and behavior, like inferential reasoning or physical reasoning. Inferential reasoning is like if you take two cups, two overturned cups, and you put a treat under one of them, kind of mix them around, but then you lift up the cup with no treat and then put it back down, the dog should, <laughs> if the dog were smart, it would know that the other cup is the one with the treat, right? That's inferential reasoning. Are you making fun of me? You know I'm bad at that. If the Nathan was smart. <laughs> you know I'm bad at that. Anyway, when you group dog brains based on their breed's selected behavior, like retrieval, for example, uh, what you find is that shepherding dogs, hunting dogs versus useless dogs, whatever. So these different kinds of dogs actually have neuroanatomical differences. Like literally their neurons are connected in different ways. Okay? okay, that's interesting. So they're all dogs, but actually that sort of behavior they were bred for does literally cause brain differences in them in how those different chunks of the brain are connected to each other. So whatever small amount of genetic difference they have between breeds, it's in the brain. It is sufficient to legitimately have changed their brains. And some of these behavioral differences between dog breeds may come down to really small mutations in receptors for neurotransmitters like oxytocin, endorphins, dopamine, glutamate. And so there are some studies out there that are like, hey, look, Sheba have this one mutation in this receptor for glutamate. Maybe that's why they're assholes. Isn't right? glutamate a food? 
Yes, yes, an amino acid, but it's also used as a neurotransmitter. Ah, okay. Is um, MSG monosexual glutamate? Yes. <laughs> it's only one sexual, a single sexual. Um, so one thing that we have looked at when we're comparing like humans and chimps is differences in intelligence. That's, that's chimpanzees. Yeah. Okay, just making sure. What? Well, keep going. Okay, anyway. Um <laughs> So we wanted to see, hey, are there any differences in like baby humans versus baby chimpanzees in terms of intelligence or something oh, like that? Oh, I was going to say in terms of intelligence. <laughs> I missed that part. I was, like, I was like, well, they look different. <laughs> yeah. So what they found is that in a lot of metrics of intelligence, they're pretty much the same. Okay. Like, for example, they learn object permanence at around the same time. But one thing that is really different is that human babies develop social learning way sooner in that they will recognize other babies try communicating with other babies, try learning from other babies. And all of these things are different than when you have chimpanzees with each other. Yeah, chimpanzees learn genocide really early, man. <laughs> Those guys are fucking murderers. But so the thing is, dogs are actually more similar to humans in that regard than to chimpanzees. That's cool. In that puppies also have a tendency to learn these kinds of social intelligence behaviors earlier on. And dogs use different parts of their brains to process the words that you say and how you say them. Okay, so like the different hemispheres in their brain, they actually process those two things separately and then bring them together. That's weird. So so if you say like, good boy, right? You're like, you're really milking it, right? And right. So, uh, or like, good boy. They can tell the difference between how you're saying words. Oh. And it's only when the two things kind of come together will they form like a full reaction to it. Yeah, when I'm praising my dog, I try to really ham up the higher notes in my voice make yeah. it sound like uh, I'm really Why don't you do that for us, Andre? I'm, I'm good. I want you to ham it up. Let's have higher Call Andre. Nathan the good boy. <laughs> I, will, I will pass on this. <laughs> 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 well, the shirt was too far. All right, anyway. Um, so next little thing is on dog preferences for people. Okay? And so as it turns out, there's this thing called uh, synchrony. And actually human beings do this too. It's an unconscious kind of matching of physical behaviors. And so if you're walking with someone, people have a tendency to match their pace. Say and I have our periods at the same time. Yeah, sure. There you go. Yeah. Perfect example. Uh, people in rocking chairs end up synchronizing their rocking. And I think this is an X-Files episode about that. <laughs> <laughs> there was a witch! <laughs> and different breeds of dogs care about synchrony more than other breeds. And so they did this experiment using two kinds of dogs. And one of the types of dog cared more if strangers synchronized to their behavior or not. And they displayed this by liking that stranger more. So basically, they preferred people who would kind of look in the same direction that they were looking, walk to the same place, and everything like that. You say the two breeds are Molossoid and Shepherd. And yeah. Shepherd dogs don't care about synchronizing shit. Right. Molossoid dogs do. Yeah. What the fuck is a Molossoid? <laughs> a Molossoid is uh, sort of like fighting dogs. Okay. Why do, why do you think they care more about synchronizing? That's a really good question. It, it's probably something that did not get purposefully bred into them. But something about their breeding process also ended up associating with this thing where they cared about this apparently usually pro-social behavior. So this is something in humans we associate with establishing cooperative groups and nonverbal communication. And for some reason, some breeds care about it and other breeds don't. Hmm. And it's this weird thing. So your dog might care if you kind of like look the same direction that it does and 
smile when they smile and then uh, maybe maybe your dog doesn't give a shit okay well amazing transition coming up yeah is we're just talking about the brain yeah uh sometimes there are brain cancers yeah now it turns out that a dog may be the reason there is the oldest type of cancer in world history yeah okay i i, I can see how that is a transition i use the same <laughs> words <laughs> so um yes the oldest cancer in the world is a cancer called canine transmissible venereal tumor. Oh, I did hear about this, actually. And There's an Atlantic article about this. Yes, one. CTVT. <laughs> Before they asked for money. Yes. It is a cancer that is spread sexually from dog to dog and has been spread that way for thousands of years. Uh, it probably first cropped up in a dog 4,000 to 8,500 years ago, and it's been passed dog to dog ever since. Is this similar to like cervical cancer or at least types of it where you get the warts or whatever and then you get the cancer or is it more or, like AIDS or is it, or is the cancer <laughs> itself more directly transferable right that's a that's a great question and originally scientists were on the lookout for that same thing because HPV the virus is the causative agent for cervical cancer but HPV is the thing that's transmissible right right CTVT, this canine tumor, isn't that just like, <laughs> uh, like like a, like the the TVs the with camera. the yeah, yeah yeah oh yeah close circuit TVs yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> CCTV yeah CCTV very close yeah CTVT um <laughs> holy shit dude CTVT is actually itself literally transmitted as cancer cells doesn't not that, as a virus oh doesn't that kind of like differentiate it from cancer yep. In a way that like almost seems like uh, definitional. Yeah. So there's one other example of this in uh, mammals, Tasmanian devils, oh, which yeah, some people might have heard about each too. Other. Yeah. There is a kind of uh, facial cancer that Tasmanian devils can spread to one another. But that kills the shit out of them. Yes. Which is very it's, different it's, from this. Yes. Yes. So the Tasmanian devil one is about 100% fatal. And it spreads pretty readily from Tasmanian devil to Tasmanian devil. And the thing about that cancer is that... Tasmanian devils, they're on an island. They have this kind of founder effect where only a couple got over to that island and then, you know, kind of have been breeding that way. So they have very little genetic diversity. Why don't they just, like, take 12 Tasmanian devils for, like, 20 years outside of the whatever stock and then let the other Tasmanian devils just die? Uh-huh. And then bring back the 12. I mean, I'm sure that that's already something that is happening. That's probably their plan. Well, I think they would like to save Tasmanian devils otherwise anyway, but I'm pretty sure there are Tasmanian devils that are in kind of zoos that they're keeping kind of purposefully in case they have to reintroduce them. Well, I didn't... Well, I guess I'm asking because I didn't know the fatality rate was 100%. If it's 100%, why are we trying to save any of them? They're going to die, right? We might as well just keep some away from the infected ones. Yeah, I mean, so not to make this whole episode about Tasmanian devils or anything, but... Tell me about the Tasmanian devils! Okay, so one issue is that it's not always easy to reintroduce zoo-raised animals into the wild. Right, they're dumb. They, like, have these liberal arts degrees. They don't know how to do taxes. Right. And they can't build log cabins or barns anymore, right? They're just, like, totally fucked, basically, when you put them back into the wild. So I think that's the reason why is they would like it if they kept a wild population um, established, if there was some way to save them. But there might not be. And the reason why this cancer spreads so readily amongst Tasmanian devils is because they don't have enough genetic diversity, so their immune systems don't recognize Mm. the cancer as foreign. We cannot spread cancers to one another as humans, okay? We are genetically diverse enough that a tumor in me is recognizably foreign to your immune system, just like organ transplants, Well, except the great Nazi cancer of 1937 in Austria. 
they were all genetically similar enough that it just like whoo was like wildfire and all of a sudden they're all nazis <laughs> i see I that's see. pretty good so nazism was the cancer okay that's I got pretty you. good i got you okay i should get an oscar for jojo rabbit so here's the thing though is why does this cancer spread in dogs okay because dogs are not like tasmanian devils dogs actually do have genetic diversity right okay i thought they're all from the yangtze river or something Originally, but that was, all that was a while back. Humans are all from Africa. Oh, <laughs> humans are from the Yangs. Oh, Africa. Yeah, right. Not China. I um, Korea. <laughs> nope, not this time. So, the way that dog cancer is able to evade the immune system in dogs is that in the process of kind of evolving in that first dog, it lost a lot of its what's called MHC or major histocompatibility complex. What that actually is is it's something that we have as well in our cells, and pretty much all mammals have it. It's almost like a passport or an ID or something like that that says that you are a citizen of that country, okay? And cells use it. They put it on their surface to kind of show immune cells, like, this is the kind of stuff that I've been making inside of my cell body and, like, hope everything's chill, and usually it's fine. When cancers start to go bad, sometimes immune cells can tell because the shit that they're putting out on their surface is all fucked up. Same with like virally infected cells, okay? So the thing about this dog cancer is that it just decides it doesn't want a passport anymore. Hmm. It doesn't make MHC. That works for a while in that the immune system isn't noticing that it's putting out any kind of aberrant shit. The thing is, eventually the immune system's like, why don't you have a passport? You know? Right. And at that point, finally it catches the cancer. It fights it off successfully. And dogs typically do not pass away from this cancer. It has an extremely low fatality rate because the immune system successfully clears it away. So, so it's like the sovereign citizen of dog cells. <laughs> yeah, <basically. laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I am traveling, right. sir. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Am I under arrest? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so basically, this cancer, this CTVT, will have this period where it gets in, it starts growing, and then it kind of enters into this stasis mode where it stays the same size. And in a lot of dogs, it stays that way until it's surgically removed or something. And then other dogs, they successfully clear it out and it's gone. Okay. But dogs still can spread it to each other. And it is this kind of really interesting case study because this line of cells has been alive, essentially, for, for like 8,000 years. That's pretty cool. That makes it like a very successful cancer, right? Because, yes. I mean, some diseases will kill, burn the... Like this Tasmanian cancer is like playing it wrong. Because eventually all the Tasmanians are going to be dead, and this cancer's fucking dead too. Yeah, so this is maybe a little bit too much in the weeds, but one thing I'll say is that cancer seems to have evolved to a point where it's so successful that it's no longer under positive or negative selection, which means that as it's going through generations, it's now just experiencing what's called genetic drift. So it has some mutations here and there, but like... None of them are really affecting whether it survives better or worse. Sure, like American genes or something. It's like, it's so ubiquitous now, you can't really do anything to American genes. It'll keep on trucking like a virus. Genes? Genes? Like, that people wear? Yeah, like denim. Oh, okay. I don't know. We were just talking about genetic shit, uh, and you say genes, you son of a bitch. That wasn't up. Do you not see how that's confusing? Uh, I don't. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we come from two different worlds, from fashion and from science. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's wrap it up. So here, look. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this two-part series on dogs that we did because we did an episode on cats, and then, you know, it's like, fuck cats, basically. Yeah, we'll talk about dogs. Yeah, and so I think dogs are pretty great. Andre, what's your vote on if dogs are awesome or not? Uh, I'm still on the fence. No, I'm just kidding. Dogs are pretty fucking awesome. I hope you guys enjoyed. 
Thank you to Stacy Song, our sound engineer. Also, thank you to Brian Allen. <laughs> and uh, you can email us at uh, petridishpod at gmail.com. Tweet us at dishpodcast. Patreon.com slash petridish. And uh, see you guys later. Ich bin ein <laughs> And I just want to take a minute. Thank you guys. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Nathan. Ooh. You guys are awesome. No one, no one thanks you at the end of this. <laughs> and, uh, I want to be here to do that for you. You know, uh, Andre, you can thank us by giving us money. <laughs> <laughs> On Patreon. <laughs> nice. So, yeah. <laughs> You're done with your whatever anyway. <laughs> Thank you everybody. Woo. <laughs>